Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to Casus Belli, the podcast about war, history, and geography. This week, we will continue the Graveyard of Empires series on the American War in Afghanistan and cover the history of the country up to the early 20th century. Before I get started, though, I just want to mention that we have a brand new website at casusbellypodcast.com, where you can find the blog and footnoted transcripts for this episode and all episodes. I know that's a pretty rapid change, but this new setup should serve the purposes of the podcast much better. Additionally, all episodes are now available on iTunes. Just search Cassis Belly in iTunes or the podcast app for the iPhone. Now, let's begin Graveyard of Empires Part 2, The Men Who Would Be Kings. As we briefly discussed in Part 1 of Graveyard of Empires, Afghanistan is often described as a failed state due to the ongoing instability within its borders and the kleptomania that dominates its politics. But is the term failed state even truly applicable to a country which exists more or less in name only? The apparatus of government in the country's capital exerts direct control little further than the outskirts of the city limits, and scarcely represents the peoples which reside within the borders they are obligated to rule. In 2001, the geographical area known as Afghanistan was ruled largely by the Taliban and to a lesser extent the Northern Alliance, which maintained a foothold in the country's northern reaches. Prior to that, the country was ruled by a king and had very little experience with representative government. To complicate matters further, the imposed machinery of state has to govern over a land dominated by ancient tribal divisions, which have only been exacerbated by attempts to westernize. To truly understand the puzzle that is Afghan political geography, though, we have to go back and examine its roots. The people generally referred to when someone says Afghan are the Pashtuns. The Pashtuns speak an Eastern Iranian language known as Pashto and likely arrived in Afghanistan and Northern Pakistan roughly 3,000 years ago. Though they are the most populous group in Afghanistan, the Pashtuns are found mostly in the southern portion of the country. In the northern marches, various other ethnic groups prevail. The Tajiks are the second most populous ethnicity, making up roughly a quarter to a third of the population. They also speak in an Iranian dialect and are most heavily concentrated in the north. Prior to the 2001 U.S. invasion, the Tajiks comprised the bulk of the Northern Alliance. After the Tajiks, there are several other ethnicities that make up only fractions of the total population and lack the influence of the Pashtuns and Tajiks themselves. All of these various peoples arrived in Afghanistan millennia ago and have participated in the many momentous events that have transpired since then. The first of these would likely be the foundation of Zoroastrianism, one of the earliest prophetic monotheisms. The religion placed Ahura Mazda, or Lord of Wisdom, at the head of creation in a vein very similar to modern understandings of Yala or Yahweh. Zoroastrianism became the dominant religion of the Near East until the founding of Christianity and later Islam. Though the religion's namesake is Zoroaster, or alternatively Zarathustra, the religion was already centuries old by the time he lived in the early 1st millennium BC. He left his mark on the religion, as best as modern scholars can tell, by being an influential thinker who clarified certain dogmas. Under the Achaemenid Persian Empire, the religion flourished and found its way to Afghanistan. Though it would eventually be displaced by other faiths, the religion survived today in small pockets in modern Iran. After the founding of Zoroastrianism, the next significant event in Afghan history would have to be its conquest by Alexander the Great. Arriving in about 330 BC, Alexander's Macedonian troops brought with them their Hellenic traditions and fused them with those of the locals. After Alexander's death, portions of his empire would remain under Greek control for centuries. 
first under the successor Seleucos, and later under the independent Bactrian Greek state. The Greco-Bactrians actually represent a fascinating little slice of history, so I'd like to take a small detour to discuss them. The first king of Greco-Bactria was Diotatus I, who seized the opportunity to withdraw from the Seleucid Empire around 250 BC. During its 260-year lifespan, the Greco-Bactrian state would engage in a myriad of conflicts and come into contact with an impressive array of peoples. Obviously, the kingdom contained Bactria, which I would define as the plains east of the Caspian Sea and south of the Aral Sea, but would also grow to contain Transoxania, the land around the Oxus River, as Afghanistan and Pakistan are commonly referred to in antiquity. From here, they would do battle not only with other Greek successors, but also with the Indian Mauryan Empire and the early Scythians, who had come to pester Rome in the following centuries. Though little is known about how these encounters would have looked, it is fascinating to picture Greek-style hoplite armies taking on ancient Indian soldiers. Of course, the Greek elements of the Greco-Bactrian army would have been significantly altered. This was still a style of warfare unknown in Central Asia prior to Alexander's arrival. From my understanding, it is reasonable to believe that these rulers of Greco-Bactria still spoke Greek and considered themselves Greek, though they likely looked more Turkic or Iranian, now having interwed with the local women for generations. Surviving coinage depicts the rulers in distinctly Greek-looking arms and armor and is inscribed in Greek. So here you have this thriving melting pot of cultures and languages in the crossroads of Asia. To visit Kandahar, or Alexander Arachosia as it was then known, in the first century BC would undoubtedly be a mesmerizing experience. Additionally, the Greco-Bactrian rulers would come into direct contact with the Han Empire, and Chinese traders may well have been present in their kingdom, selling silken wares to Greek-speaking nobles. Greco-Bactria would eventually fall in the first decades of the first century AD, and was conquered by the Parthian king Mithridates I. During its lifetime, though, the mix of cultures and civilizations must have forged an incredibly vibrant society, fueled by wealth from the Silk Road, which passed right through its center. Following the conquest by Mithridates, Afghanistan would more or less remain a Persian satrapy until the birth of Islam, when the country was conquered by the Syrian Umayyads in the mid-7th century. With them, the Umayyads brought Islam, but would eventually be ousted by yet another Persian empire, who were subsequently dethroned by the Ghaznavids just prior to the year 1000. The Ghaznavids, so named for Mahmud of Ghazni, would be the first indigenous rulers of Afghanistan had seen in nearly 1500 years. This would only last about 200 years, though, until the arrival of the Mongols, who would eventually establish the Timurid Empire. The Timurids suffered a humiliating collapse in the mid-16th century, leading to yet another period of Afghan self-rule. It was in this collapse, though, that one of the greatest empires the world has ever known would rise, the Mughals. In the wake of the Timurid fall, a man named Babur was able to seize control of Kabul and from there conquer most of the Indian subcontinent. Babur himself was actually a direct descendant of Genghis Khan by way of his mother, and Tamerlane by the way of his father. Though his reign was short, 1526 to 1530, Babur set the foundations for greatness. From his humble beginnings in Kabul, he conquered all of modern Pakistan and northern India. His successors would successfully reign their empire well into the 18th century when it finally collapsed. Under pressure from the expanding Persian Empire to the west, the Mughals would lose Afghanistan to Nadir Shah, paving the way for Ahmad Shah Durrani. Ahmad Shah Durrani is, in a sense, the founding father of Afghanistan, to the extent that he is often referred to as Ahmad Shah Baba, Baba being the Pashto word for father. As much as I'm tempted to go explore a little linguistic rabbit hole here, I'm going to resist it. 
But to anyone who is interested, it's fairly remarkable how closely related words for mother and father are across most languages. Anyway, back to Durrani. Born Ahmad Shah Abdali in 1722, most likely in Harai, he was a member of the Sadozai tribe and the Abdali clan. His early life is not documented well, but he spent most of his teenage years on the run from enemies from his family. His big break would come in 1740 when he was 18 years old, and Nader Shah of Persia conquered Kandahar. The Abdali clan allied with the Persian conquerors, and Ahmad, being an influential member of the clan, joined Nader Shah's retinue. There, he faithfully served the Shah in various staff positions, and he even gained the attention of a mystic, who told the Shah that Ahmad would one day achieve greatness. When the Shah was murdered in a palace intrigue in 1747, Ahmad was well placed to benefit. He was already highly influential in court, and was the rising star of the Abdali clan, which made up the bulk of the Shah's army. With his influence, he was able to seize control of the Abdali cohorts in much of southern Afghanistan. After driving off the non-Afghan elements of the Persian army, a tribal council known as the Loya Jirga was called. This council officially voted Ahmad king, or Amir, but I will use king for simplicity's sake, of the Afghan tribes. To be clear, this council would have been composed entirely of Pashtun tribes, but offered him the legitimacy he needed to begin consolidating his power. After being elected king, Ahmad Shah Abdali began using the eponym Durrani, meaning pearls, a name supposedly pulled from his habit of wearing a pearl earring. He then changed the name of the Abdali clan to Durrani to reflect their new power and influence. Fortunately for the new king, the Persian occupiers had already done most of the heavy lifting in terms of pacifying the fiercely independent tribes. Thus, his consolidation of the Pashtuns was made that much easier and rendering his visions of conquest that much more feasible. And that is precisely what he would spend most of the next 10 years doing. He took his army north to Kabul and then the rest of northern Afghanistan and carved roughly what would become the nation's modern borders. Additionally, he modernized the army and introduced artillery while conducting several raids into India. By the time of his death in 1778, at the age of 50, Ahmad Shah Durrani had cemented his place in history. His epitaph reads, quote, The king of high rank, Ahmad Shah Durrani, was equal to Kisra in managing the affairs of his government. In his time, from the awe of his glory and greatness, the lioness nourished the stag with her milk. From all sides in the ear of his enemies there arrived a thousand reproofs from the tongue of his dagger. The date of his departure from the house of mortality was the year of the Hijra, 1186. Following the death of Durrani, Afghanistan would remain mostly embroiled in tribal politics until the beginning of the Great Game between Russia and Great Britain. This competition for influence and power over Central Asia found its fulcrum in Afghanistan, leading to several misguided attempts by the British for control in order to block Russia from threatening British India directly. The First Anglo-Afghan War provides an unfortunate presage of how the American occupation would unfold and help provide Afghanistan with its inauspicious moniker, Graveyard of Empires. The First Anglo-Afghan War began as an attempt by the British to seize control of Afghanistan in order to block any potential moves by the Russians on India. Finding that the sitting Afghan ruler, Dost Muhammad, was unwilling to make satisfactory arrangements, the British chose instead to back a former king in exile, Shah Shuja. Shah Shuja had been ousted several decades before, but offered a convenient and willing puppet for British planners. So in December of 1838, the British began their march on Kandahar. Though, likely due to differing methods for counting soldiers, I've been unable to nail down for certain how large the army of the Indus was. Though to be sure, it certainly was enormous.
Marching with somewhere between 38,000 and 58,000 men and a camel train of 30,000, the army was a veritable juggernaut of force. Though the going was slow, they arrived in Kandahar on April 25, 1839, taking the city without resistance. By August, they had taken the fortress of Ghazni and soon afterwards occupied Kabul. Like the American campaign of 2001, the invasion was a resounding success. The country was taken, and resistance appeared to be minimal. Unfortunately, insurgency was brewing. British problems sprung from several sources, but foremost was that Shah Shuja was correctly regarded as a corrupt puppet. He made very little effort to govern effectively and alienated the population. Simultaneously, the British army exacerbated the problem by behaving poorly, as armies are wont to do. This was all tolerated as long as the occupation appeared temporary, which it may well have seemed. Within months, roughly 30,000 troops had been withdrawn. There remained about 8,000 British regulars and Indian sepoys, though. When the decision was made to allow families to accompany the soldiers, it became clear to the locals that the British were there for the long haul. In April of 1840, a British garrison at Kahan came under siege and a relief column was driven off. By August, the garrison had surrendered. Meanwhile, the newly elected Conservative Parliament in London decided to cut spending on the war. This left little money to improve positions or to pay off friendly tribes, leading them to cut supply and trade lines between Kabul and India. From here, problems only grew worse. The British became bogged down in their cantonment in Kabul and rarely ventured out. In November, the British governor was lured out into the streets where he was killed in a riot. The British soldiers, not seeing themselves as riot police, made no response, and Shah Shuja apparently couldn't be bothered with governing his realm, so he made no reprisal either. This only emboldened the rebellion. Finally, in January of 1842, the situation became untenable and the British began their long retreat back to Punjab. 700 white soldiers followed by 1,200 sepoys and 12,000 civilians fled the city. The retreat almost immediately devolved into a rout. Along the way, the column was harassed, sniped at, and ambushed. Famously, on 13 January 1842, Dr. William Bryden arrived in Jalalabad with a pair of sepoys. He was the only white man to survive. Predictably, the British did not learn their lesson about military adventurism in Afghanistan. By the mid-1860s, they were again playing power politics with Russia in Central Asia. After their mild defeat in the Crimean War a decade earlier, the Russian Empire was on the march in the east and by 1868 had incorporated Samarkand, now Uzbekistan. Slowly, but seemingly inevitably, this would lead to yet another disastrous military confrontation known as the Second Anglo-Afghan War. This was, of course, the height of the Great Game and the apex of British imperial might. The Union Jack flew over North America, the Caribbean, Europe, Africa, India, and Australia, and represented a truly global empire. The old adage that the sun never set on the British Empire was literally true. This was the age that gave rise to the romanticized world of British India that was immortalized in the works of Rudyard Kipling. Though the war wouldn't begin in earnest until 1878, the wind-up began as early as 1873 when the British and Russians agreed to divide Afghanistan into spheres of influence. Russia would have direct control over everything north of the Oxus River, and everything south would be Afghanistan, presumably in Britain's sphere of influence. The sitting liberal government in London was happy enough with this arrangement, but when Disraeli's conservative government was elected in 1874, it was bent on a more aggressive policy in Afghanistan. Acting on this, they occupied Quetta and effectively incorporated Baluchistan into British India. This was meant to be the first in several moves to consolidate more direct control over Central Asia 
but it would prove to be the high water mark. The British Viceroy, Lord Lytton, soon dispatched an envoy to the Afghan king, Sher Ali, in an attempt to bring him into the fold of British India. The king refused, essentially telling the British to stick it. This may have simply led to more protracted negotiations, but for the arrival of a Russian delegation in Kabul in July of 1878. This spooked the British enough to prompt them to dispatch yet another envoy demanding Afghan acquiescence. When this was refused, the British felt they had one choice, to invade. In November of 1878, the British departed their camps in modern Pakistan and began the march northward. With news of their advance, Sher Ali sent counsel to the Russians, who advised him to simply sue for peace. This he clearly did not choose. In the meantime, the British had captured Jalalabad in January of 1879. Shortly, they would begin their advance on Kabul, but would not arrive before Sher Ali's death in February. Attempting to seize the opportunity presented, the British backed the ascension of Yakub Khan, Ali's disfavored son. With Khan in power, the British were able to get a peace treaty signed that ceded the Khyber Pass as well as other areas of southern Afghanistan to British India. This treaty also got the British permission to station representatives in Kabul that they had earlier been refused and incorporated Afghanistan into the Indian Free Trade Zone. In return, Khan received a subsidy and British backing. Almost immediately trouble would begin. In September 1879, three Afghan regiments marched on Kabul to seek redress for unpaid wages. The men were turned away and promptly joined the local mob, storming the British mission in Kabul, killing their envoy. Not wanting a repeat of their first war, the British decided violence needed to be reciprocated with violence. In October of 1879, they marched on Kabul and sacked it. With things getting hairy, Khan chose to abdicate the throne and was exiled to India. Rather than appoint a new puppet ruler, though, the British chose to simply annex Afghanistan and begin carving it up. These dreams of conquest would soon be tempered, though. The Afghans attacked Kabul in an attempt to retake it and were quite successful. Though the British troops would soon retake the city, it would not be long before it was again under threat of attack. In July of 1880, the British became aware of a column of Afghan troops marching on Kabul and moved to block them. The ensuing Battle of Maiwand resulted in a Pyrrhic victory for the British. They blocked the advance, but many were killed and they were forced to retreat to Kandahar. From there, they were able to drive off another wave of Afghan soldiers, but were so weakened they could no longer prosecute a war or occupy the country. By the winter of 1880, the British chose a new Afghan king in Abdur Rahman and essentially gave him everything the Afghans had wanted in the first place. In exchange for subsidies, Rahman agreed to promote British foreign policy interests, but denied a British envoy, demanding that only Indian representatives be present in Kabul. In the end, the Second Anglo-Afghan War cost the British government 17 million pounds and Benjamin Disraeli his government. The liberal government that replaced his ordered a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan, giving Rahman nearly free reign. He would go on to lead an oppressive, tyrannical state that he was able to centralize through extreme violence. Under his leadership, the Duran Line would eventually be established and Baluchistan would permanently leave Afghan control. After losing yet another war in Afghanistan and having to contend with a relatively strong Afghan king, it was apparent that a definitive border would need to be established between Afghanistan and British India. This would lead to the British Indian Foreign Secretary Mortimer Durand creating a document demarcating the current border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. On November 12, 1893, he would meet with Rahman Khan and sign the document which would lead to so much future strife. 
The division was basically a line running through the median of British and Afghan influence, but it cut directly through the heart of Pashtun lands, the very people who make up the majority of the Afghan population. The divided population not only sowed the seeds for the coming Third Anglo-Afghan War, but also for today's Afghan-Pakistani tensions, as well as the Pakistani Taliban. The Third Anglo-Afghan War was Afghanistan's final push to distance itself from the sphere of British colonial influence and, in a break from previous wars, the Afghans instigated it. Just before the war started in May of 1919, the Afghan king Habibullah Khan died and his son Amanullah ascended. The new king did not have the same deference for British arrangements as his forebears, and so immediately declared that Afghanistan would have its own, independent foreign policy. Since the end of the Second Anglo-Afghan War, the country had essentially been a client state of the British Empire, the ruler taking a subsidy as compensation for compliance. Amanullah saw to the end of that. On May 6th, he sent forces to raid into Pakistan as a demonstration of his defiance. The British would not sit idly by. The British immediately mustered 10,000 men and moved them into Afghanistan. They were not interested in taking round, but rather in retribution, engaging what were then known as butcher and bolt tactics. They even brought air power to use for the first time in Afghanistan, using biplanes to bomb villages. Though there weren't any major battles, there were certainly some very costly and fierce engagements, in which roughly 1,700 British Indian casualties were suffered, and it's estimated that about 1,000 Afghans died in battle, though far more civilians likely perished. By August, both sides had had enough. In the Treaty of Rawalpindi, King Abdallah got pretty much exactly what he had wanted in the first place, an independent foreign policy. The British, for their part, ceased to pay the subsidy to the Afghan monarch and, more importantly, got the Durand Line reaffirmed. Relations between Afghanistan and British India, as well as the Pakistani successor state, would remain fraught right through the Cold War and into the present day. Tensions would again come to a head in 1949, two years after Pakistan achieved independence from the British crown, when a Pakistani military aircraft bombed a village on the Afghan side of the border. This in turn led to Afghanistan protesting and ceasing to acknowledge the Durand Line and the treaties that led to its creation. The Afghan government feels the line is an illegitimate legacy of British colonial expansion and doesn't constitute a genuine border. They hold that it is an issue for the Pashtun people to resolve and remain agitated toward foreign powers when they reference it. Of course, we would be remiss if we did not discuss the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan as it relates directly to the formation of the Taliban and the Mujahideen. I'm afraid we've more or less run out of time with this episode, though. In the next installment, we will investigate the origins of the Taliban and try to get an understanding of how they came to be the dominant political force in the country. We'll then return where we left off with the American occupation and the shifting strategies used by American commanders on the ground there. Before ending this episode, though, I'd like to leave you with the musings of Rudyard Kipling in The Young British Soldier. In what can only be described as a word of caution to would-be conquerors, he writes, When you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's plains, and the women come to cut up what remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains and go to your god like a soldier.